Warm and smiling faces, especially many who are returning for different events this weekend. I see my good friend Tyler Stevenson down here with his wonderful family and generations of people who serve the Lord. And welcome to all of you this morning who uh, have come here to build relationship with both each other and with your Father. Please stand with me at this point and join in the call to worship. This printed in your bulletin. Joyful is the sound we make this morning. Thankful is the song we sing. Hopeful is the prayer on our lips. May the peace and presence of Christ be known among us. Please pray with me. Our loving and heavenly Father, there are so many things that we could enumerate this morning about what we love and appreciate about you. This morning I think of two. One is the fact that you are hope. That you remind us every minute of every day Even in the darkest moments of our life, at the pit of despair, you remind us that there are better days ahead, that there are better relationships out ahead of us, and that as we follow you, you will lead us to those glorious, glorious moments ahead. We thank you also this morning that you free us from ourselves of that unbelievable Herculean weight of always having to do enough to get by and to exert enough effort to make our lives better. And you remind us in those quiet moments as we stand in front of you today that it's not us that has to do anything, that it's you that will take care of us and give us abundantly more than we could ever want for ourselves. And it's in that hope and in that trust this morning that we come to worship you We thank you for the relationship that you have always been to us. And we praise you today in your name. Amen.
It's great to see you as we gather today for worship. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things to uh, bring to your attention this morning. We are, to remind you, we are collecting uh, canning jars. They don't have to be this size. They could be a little bit smaller. That's all right. We need, we've gotten about 20. We need about 180 more. So uh, if you have some of these lingering around in your home that you don't think you will be using this year, uh, drop them by the church anytime you happen to be here. Bring them next Sunday. Just leave them in the back or give them to someone, and we will make sure they get to the place. And we're using these on May 5th or May 8th. So uh, if you can uh, get those to us prior to that, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, a couple of, uh, among the many announcements in the bulletin, there are a couple of inserts in your bulletin about helping with children's ministries this summer. If you are able to do that, just fill out that form. You can drop it in the offering plate a little later or hand it to uh, one of the pastors and ushers as you leave this morning or drop it by the church office. We'll make sure it gets to the right people. But we appreciate your help in caring for our little ones, they're very important to us, and we want to do all we can to help nurture them in the faith. Folks, forgive me for one editorial comment this morning, but I've reflected so many times about this passage that we're about to read that it astounds me that from the very beginning, the tactic of the devil has always been exactly the same. And Over and over and over and over, we just keep falling for exactly the same tactic. And how stupid can humans be that we keep falling for the exact same tactic of the devil? And it's it's haunting, but it's uh, it's something that is so true. Hopefully, we can read this this morning and recognize the emptiness of the devil's promises. I read this morning from Genesis three, the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Oh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Oh, the servant deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. I'd invite you now to please stand and join us in the doxology as the ushers come forward. Father, you've been so generous and lavish in the things you've given us to us. Let us not be stingy as we offer our lives and our resources to you in your name. Amen.
Thank you. It's a, it's a powerful hymn about God who is um, the creator of all things, and uh, including us, and is at work in our world and in our lives, and we give thanks. Thank you. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Following the prayer of confession, uh, we will spend some time in uh, further praying together. And as we do that, after the prayer, if you'd like to use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Let us pray together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name what our hearts can no longer hear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed by you. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, who through his grace forgives us all our sins. Father, we thank you for all that you have created, all that you have made, and we worship you as your creatures that you love with an everlasting love. We come today because of what you've done for us in Christ, and we come in gratitude and thanksgiving for your many blessings. We also come today acknowledging our need. Some of us are here today wrestling with the future. And we are wondering about what path to take, where this journey is leading us, what the signs may be telling us. Give us courage to trust you and wisdom to follow you. We pray, Father, for those of us who are struggling with relationships that are not where we would like for them to be. There is hurt and pain and disappointment. We ask for your healing. Give us the courage to acknowledge whatever role we have played in the breakdown of the relationship and in humility to seek restoration. We pray, Father, for the, those of us who are grieving today. For some, the grief is, is death. For others, it is the loss of a dream. For others, it is, it is the death of, of a hope and a passion. And Lord, whatever it may be, bring your restoring, comforting grace. And we pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health issues. We think especially of Barbara Rangel and Bill Duzema. Bob Joe Bear, Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buker, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muker. 
Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Mike Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds today. Bring your healing grace to each of them. We thank you for the ministry of this church, and today we pray for our finance committee. They are tasked with this job of putting together our budget, and in some ways it has the feel of a a mundane job, and yet it is important. We pray that you will give to this committee the ability to, to live in the tension of being wise and being full of faith. And we pray that you will guide them. We pray for the churches around us, and think especially of the Angelic United Methodist Church and Pastor Crowell. Pour out your blessing upon this congregation as they, as they serve each other and their community and beyond. May they know your blessing to them. And Father, we pray for our nation and the needs of our, of our nation. Pray for the people of Flint, Michigan, as they continue to struggle with their water crisis. We pray for the election process going on right now. And we ask that you will, you will bring a, maybe a, a different spirit that we are perceiving among the candidates and their supporters. We pray, Father, that, that you, will, uh, you will bring peace where there is so much violence and chaos in our nation. We think, Father, of the world and pray for refugees and trying to get out of Syria and, and other dangerous places of the world and ask that, that you would help them. And we pray, Father, for the nation of Haiti today. Pastor John and Joey Jennings, Kim Gladden, and others are there exploring the ministry of connection of our district and the churches there. And we pray that you will give wisdom and insight into how we can make that happen and the best way to serve the church there. And we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Cuba. It is wonderful to see uh, good reports of your spirit at work, and we see some openness, but we also know that there is still much opposition. And we pray after years of opposition that you will give to the church a sense of freedom, to see you at work in all that is going on. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your presence with us. As we continue in worship, may we know your spirit speaking into us individually and corporately. And we ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our risen Lord, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds.
Please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. And following the reading, all the children going to children's church may be dismissed. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind." 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord.
be seated. Resurrection is one of the most phenomenal gifts that God gives us. I mean, God gives us a lot of awesome gifts. But to think that even though we die, we will live. To think that we will live in all eternity with God our creator is mind-boggling. It is an amazing gift that God has given us. And the thing that comes to my mind as I think about resurrection, I think about eternity, for a long time, I've wondered, what is that going to be like? You know, what, what's that going to look like? What are we going to do? When I was in, I think about seventh grade, our youth pastor was talking to us about heaven, and he asked us, so if you could, if you could design heaven how you wanted to, what would it be like? And for me, I said, well, it was a never-ending baseball game. I mean, you know, that I can't think of anything more fun than playing baseball all the time. And I don't remember how he responded, but I'm pretty sure he said to me, that's not going to be it. My question has been for a long time, so what is it going to be? Are, Are we going to sort of sit on clouds? Are we going to sit back in lounge chairs and just sort of, you know, What are we going to do? I think, as a part of worshiping God, we're going to work. I think we're going to do things. I think we're going to accomplish things. I think that because in many ways, what the picture we get of of eternity and the kingdom, as when Jesus ushers in the kingdom, it really is the fulfillment, the the reestablishment of creation and all that God intended and more. And when you look back at the creation story, you find that, that God gets to the end of the sixth day and he, he says, it's very good, and he finishes. But to say that God finishes creation doesn't mean that creation is done. I think God, God did everything he intended to do. God created everything he intended to create in the way that he intended to create it. But when you get to the end of that, He says to Adam and Eve, now, go to work. God's already created all of it. And he still says to them, go to work. And they do. It's not enough that the earth and the garden nourishes them. They're responsible for taking care of the garden. They are not, as someone said, they're not just, they're not just formed from the earth, but they are formed for the earth. They are formed to work and to do and to accomplish and to continue creating. That was sort of a new concept for me because I always envision work as part of the curse. (laughs) You know? And and we sort of talk about it that way sometimes. Hey, you want to go see a movie? No, I got to work. Right? You want to go do this? No, I have to work. Are you off this weekend? No, I have to work. Right? I mean, we, we talk of it in terms of it, it's, a, it's a curse on us. And, and there's something in the back of my mind, at least, is thinking, well, you know, leisure, that's what I want to live for, not work. And to think that, 
that, you know, that, that work is a part of God's eternal plan is sometimes a little bit hard to grasp. And then I realized that it, work really is a gift of God. I mean, yes, there are times where work doesn't feel like that. It's hard, and it's difficult, and, it, and it's a struggle. But aren't most good things? And then we get to the end. You know those days you get to the end of work, and you're tired, and you're worn out? But there is a sense of fulfillment that you have accomplished some things that you wanted to accomplish. Or maybe you work with some people and, and all of a sudden the light bulb has come on for them because of things that you're trying to teach them or work with them. Or maybe at what you do, you're building something and, and you see progress and it feels good to, to, to be able to do that. And really when you talk about work, what we're really talking about is creating, recreating, restoring, redeeming. We're talking about making things better. And that's a gift from God. He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, let me handle all of it. I'll take care of it. You just go about your stuff and and I'll do all the work for you. And you just sit back and relax. But honestly, what kind of an existence would that be? And so I think when we get to, I think in eternity, we're going to work. And I think we're going to do all kinds of work. I think we're going to run the gamut of work. All kinds, depending on our gifts and our abilities and what we love to do. I think we're going to do all of that stuff. The one thing that worries me about, about eternity is, is there going to, I mean, there's going to be a need for a whole lot of different kinds of jobs. I've been wondering, is there going to need for preaching? And that makes me a little bit nervous. You know, it reminds me of the cartoon I saw the guy who's, who's up in heaven and clouds, and he's holding up the sign, John 3.16. You know how you see that sometimes at sporting events, you know, behind home plate or the goal post or behind the basket? And the guy next to him says, hey, you don't have to do that here. We're okay. And, and I, I sort of wonder about that, and then I realize, no, because I think there will be no end in eternity to learning about who God is and learning about ourselves, because that is not a curse either. It's just the reality that learning is a joy. You know those moments when, you, when you're reading something, someone's talking to you, and all of a sudden the light goes on? Those are some of the best moments in all the world. And I think that will be a lot of what happens in eternity. We're going to learn. Because if we get, to, we get to eternity, come to the new heaven and the new earth, and, and we establish ourselves, and all of a sudden we know everything there is to know, part of the issue is we'll be God. And I don't think that's going to happen. But there's great joy in learning and in creating and doing. And really what we're talking about is living eternally, bearing the image of God. Eugene Peterson says the first, the first picture we get of God is God working. Right? In the beginning, God worked. In the beginning, God created And he kept on creating and continued to create. And he's still creating and working. It is the nature of who God is. Jesus says, he says, my father is always working. And I'm working too. It is a part of the nature of God to do, to be active, to work. Years ago in seminary, I read this tremendous book by G. Ernest Wright. It was just, the title is called The God Who Acts. The God who does things. 
And it's in contrast to all the pagan gods who, who don't do anything. But our God is active. He's at work. He is creating and restoring and redeeming and transforming. And it's in his nature to do those things. And Genesis says we're created in the image of God. And one of the ways in which we reflect the image of God is to do things, to work. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. We get to do what God does. And that's why I think when we think about the things that we do now, whether you call it work or you call it using your gifts or whatever it is that you call it, the things that we do now are always a catalyst for the flourishing of God's creation. Whatever that may be, that's human beings. Our, our work, what we do, has something to do with making people's lives better. With, with drawing people into a, a, an understanding of who they are as children of God. It, we're, we're trying to help people exist in a way that is more productive, more fruitful. It is, um, it's what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 4 that we read. He's beginning his ministry. And he comes to Nazareth and he says, here's what it's about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the captives, to to, uh, set free those who are oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor, flourishing. And all of Jesus' ministry is continually about helping people flourish as loved Beings love children of God. And all of our work for God, in one way or another, our work is is a catalyst for making that happen. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes uh, we it's overt, sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes we think about what we're doing and we have to search a little bit to see how what we're doing helps other people. But I guarantee you, it does more than we realize. But it's not just about individual people. It's the bigger picture of making the world a better place. Of the flourishing of all that God has made and all that God designs it to be. And our culture and and our society and and the existence of, of all that is our world. We are, part of our work is to make that a better place a flourishing, to experience who God is and to see what Jesus is describing here in Luke 4. One of the, that, that's why justice is often a part of our work. You know, the, the thing that we're continually combating is evil. And, and one of the things that happens in our work is, is that we are combating the evil that is present in the world. And every time... We do something that is good. It doesn't matter if everyone in society thinks it's valuable. If it's good, if it's an act of creating, if it's an act of of transforming and renewing and redeeming and restoring, anything we do like that, anything that helps the world and people be a better place, we are striking a blow against evil. 
Because evil is all about destruction. And we're trying to to turn that around. To be a small catalyst for that happening. And so often it will be things like justice. What we see, for instance, in Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity on the streets of Calcutta. But a lot of other things. A lot of things that we don't even think about. Just making the world, making people's lives, making, making the places where we live and interact and beyond a little bit better, a little bit more good brought to those things. And it'll, I think it will mean beauty. I think that we, we do things to make the world uh, see and experience the beauty of God. And, and sometimes that's through... Uh, forms of art that we that we look at or we listen to or we engage in, but but often it is reversing the evil in our world, so that even a, even the simple acts of of picking up trash off the ground or assisting someone who's having a difficult time or or taking, taking flowers to someone who doesn't get to see them. All of those things are a way of bringing beauty into people's lives and into the world. And every time we do that, however small those things may be, we are striking a blow against the destructiveness of evil. And it's good. I mean, think about all the things that God creates. I mean, so much of it is unnecessary. I mean, why do we need, you know, thousands of different kinds of plants and and birds and insects and animals? Because God loves to create stuff. And because God loves variety and because God loves beauty. And we do too. And of course, it's our work is also leading people and societies and culture to see who Jesus is. You know, we're continually thinking about, about how, we, how we represent Jesus and helping that through our work, through our activity, through the things that we do, that people will, will see Christ in us and be drawn to him, that they might know the transforming grace in their lives as we have. But all of these things are not separated from each other as if one's good and one's not or one's better or one's best. It's all an integrated, holistic perspective of what we do. All of it helping the world flourish and people to see Jesus. Now the hard thing for us, I think, is that because sin has entered the picture, it skewed our perspective about work. We read this... this, uh, story from the from Genesis 3 and what we discover is that that while Adam and Eve were working after after the fall now when they work the ground it fights back and we live our lives in the sense of work fighting back at us and what's happened what happens because of this is that we get a skewed view of work and so we have a world in which we need to talk about justice because there's so much injustice. We, have, we live in a world where, where we're trying to, to, to bring good because there's so much evil. And there are so many people and circumstances 
who through the, the, the work and quite frankly some of the creative energies of people, that they're doing destructive things instead of things that lead to flourishing. And Scripture is filled with, with all kinds of places where God is warning Israel and others, look, this is not what you're intended to do. You can't treat vulnerable people like that. You can't treat the poor like that. You can't treat anybody like that. You can't treat the earth like that. You can't treat what I've made like that because we are tempted to do so. But I suspect that our, our struggle with, with the, the, the warped sense of work is really not so much that we are, we're, we're going to take jobs that are harming people. But rather, the kind of perspective of work that believes it can do for us what only God can do. Think about Exodus chapter 1. And the Israelites are in Egypt, and this chapter 1 begins to tell us about their enslavement and how poorly, terribly treated they are. It talks about how they have to work there as slaves. But that's not the only way in which work enslaves us. When we begin to think that work is going to get us what only God can, we are enslaved to work. When our motivation for work, when our purpose for work is so that we can get more. So that we can, we can have more. So that we can, we can be more famous or we can have more influence or we can have more power. Things that quite frankly often are the result of work. But when those things become the reason we work, we are enslaved to work. Our perspective is skewed. And so that's when we start talking about people who are workaholics. Because if those are your goals, if that's your dream, if that's your desire, if that's where you're headed with your work, then you won't stop until you have everything you want. And the truth is, you never get all that you want. Because those things can't fulfill us. Only God can. And so we will continue to fight and push and manipulate and take advantage of people and cut corners and, and, and do things that we shouldn't do because we're trying to get to these things that we think will bring us fulfillment. And they never do. They're always short. It's in, it's in, though, in, the, in that struggle that and I think we often, we often are wrestling not just with those things fulfilling us, but as a part of that, how we value the different things that we do on this earth. And work becomes very self-focused. When you think about eternity, there won't be any self-focused work in eternity. Nothing we do will be self-focused. It will all be done to glorify God. It will all be done with the right motives and the right intent. Which is why we don't have to worry about our work in eternity being manipulative of people. Or hurting people or taking advantage of people. Because the whole playing field will be different. But I think sometimes one of the reasons we struggle here is because not only does, is our view of what work can do for us skewed, but also 
how we place value on work gets skewed. Our culture, our society tells us this kind of work is valuable and this kind of work, man, not so much. And the truth is we do that in the church too. It's sad, but we do. We do it in the church. We put value on, on different kinds of things that we do in the church. And, and subconsciously, if nothing else, we say, well, that's more valuable than that is. But the reality is often the only reason anybody can do this is because people are doing this. It's just the reality of life. I, I think about what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 12, and he says, he uses the body as a metaphor for the church. And he says, you know, there are parts of our bodies that are, that are visible, parts of our bodies that are invisible. There are parts of our bodies that we treat with honor and parts of our bodies that we don't treat with honor. But he said, you, if you don't have all of it, it's pretty hard to be the kind of body that you're supposed to be. And then he says, and the parts that we give less honor actually ought to have the most honor because they're doing what they're doing without any recognition. And we think, oh, we can get along with that. Right? We can't. And so as we think about what we do, often we place value judgments on the different things that we do. And it's, it's harmful. It's one of the reasons why we tend to be people who scratch and claw to get to something that we think is better. But the reality is it doesn't matter what we do. And I'm not just talking about things we get paid for either. You know, none of this is just things that we get paid for. Because there are lots of things that we do that are vital and important to the flourishing of God's creation. And we don't get a cent for it. But that's okay. And so sometimes uh, we're, and sometimes we're in a position where you would think, okay, I'm in a job that I don't like. I'm doing something I don't want to do. I dislike it. Maybe even you hate it. And so we have really two options. Find something else to do, and we often don't do that because it's such a risk to do it, but maybe God might be prompting us to that. Or the other thing is we start saying, Lord, help me to see you in the midst of what I'm doing and to change my perspective about it. Because it's valuable what I'm doing, even if it's not exactly what I'd like to be doing. And sometimes we're in positions of life where we can't do anything about what we're doing. Maybe because of the situation of our family. Maybe the situation of, of, of people in our lives that we're responsible for. Maybe because of the, the, the point in life where we've, we've stepped aside from, from having a job in which we get paid. And now we're in a, in a stage of life where we're sometimes, we, you know, we talk about being retired. It doesn't mean that we stop being catalysts for flourishing in the earth. In fact, sometimes those are the hardest places because we're not getting recognition. We're not, people aren't coming to us and saying, wow, that's so great what you're doing. And even in our culture, often, we will, people will speak disparagingly of stay-at-home parents. And you, sometimes I've heard people say, well, oh, you do that, oh, you don't work. Anybody been a stay-at-home parent? I'm telling you, that's, a hard, that's hard work. Maybe more work than the places where you go to get paid. And the responsibility of being there and taking care of our most valuable resource, children. When you think about 
talking earlier about the inserts about children's church and nursery, I think one of the reasons we struggle to find people to staff those ministries is because subconsciously we don't really think they're all that important. And I'm not saying that we wouldn't say that because I think we all value children. But in the end, maybe for some of us, we're not doing it because I've got more important things to do. It's hard for me to imagine anything more important than nurturing the faith of our little children. You think about people in this world who commit atrocious crimes and, and people who, you know, are at the forefront of injustice in our world. I have a feeling, I'm pretty confident of this, if you trace their life back to when they were little, they went through some horrific experiences. And it's created the kind of person they are. And I think if you thought about people that you admire and respect, people who are bringing lots of good to the earth, if you, took, if you went back in their life, I'm pretty sure you would find an upbringing, whether it was, whether it was a spirit in a church or not, but an upbringing of love and compassion and nurturing. And that shaped them. And we all can look back at our lives and people who've shaped us and we give thanks for that. Whatever we do, and maybe you don't even remember the names of the people who have shaped your life. But they're valuable. They're important. And it's good work. Whatever it is that we do. What I want us to hear is that whatever we do, whatever we're doing in the world, to be productive, whether it's for somebody else so that they can be productive or whether it's overtly productive and everyone can see it, whether it's behind the scenes or in front of people, whether it's a job that you think culture and society respects or not, none of that really matters because Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and talking all about resurrection. And he gets to the end of it and he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, for the Lord is not in vain. It's not useless. And I don't think he means by that things that we call overtly spiritual. But it's, it's doing what we do and saying, Lord, it's yours. When Jesus gets to the end of his life, before he's arrested in the garden praying, he says, Lord, I've done the work you asked me to do on earth for your glory. And, and that's what it comes back to. And I don't think that work is just the 12, 24 hours of that night or even that week or even the three some odd years that he was in public ministry. I think it's all the 30 some years he lived. All of it was done for the glory of God. And God was glorified in all of it. We don't know much of anything about what Jesus was doing from the time he was a little boy to when he first appeared on the scene as a, as a, as a rabbi and a teacher. But whatever he was doing was for the glory of God. And when he says, I came to do what you asked me to do for, the, for your glory, it's all of that. reading a book recently and they're talking about um, our work. 
And the author said something to the effect of, even though we acknowledge we're not God, we're representatives of God. And as representatives of God, our calling is to play God. He said, I know that sounds strange, to play God, but that is our calling. I'm serious about that. And he said, the reason for that is because when you watch a little child playing, what do you almost always see them doing? Imitating an adult. We did it when we were children. We've seen our children or other people's children do it. We've watched it. Children imitate adults. And really, as God's children here, we're called to imitate God. And like children, to do it, not worrying about the results, not being driven by something bigger, better, but just enjoying the privilege of doing what we're doing in the moment as God's children. And so rather than seeing work as a, as a burden, it's a gift. And we give thanks. And as we come to this table this morning, we come in a spirit of thanksgiving. Recognizing that God has given us all kinds of gifts. And one of those gifts is the ability to do things. To have a part to play in, in, in being a catalyst for the flourishing of God's people and all of God's creation and to bring glory and honor to God in doing just that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift of creating and doing and transforming and renewing, restoring Help us to see, help us to see you pleased with whatever it is we are doing to be catalysts for the flourishing of your creation. Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that you will pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we may know the power of the risen Christ in us in every part of our being, and sense the anointing of your Spirit on all that we do every day. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup, and again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by Rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. Altar rail is always open if you want to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we have trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you would like those, just let me know as you come forward.
I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God and with a desire for God to, to be active in your life and, to, and to, to use you for his purposes, come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father. Thank you.
stand for the closing Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.